This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I love a good story, and I'm not alone. Anthropologists tell us that storytelling is a universal feature of all human societies. We are hardwired for stories. Our closest friends are those who know our life stories. Our stories are essential to how we make sense of the world as well as how we make sense of our lives. And the great stories, the stories that have stood the test of time, actually shape us in important ways. They form and frame the way that we see the world and our place in the world. Second only to scripture itself, the story that shaped me most as a boy and one I've returned to throughout my life is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Shout out. Yes, thank you. Thank you. And there are other lesser stories that you might prefer, but um, we won't talk about that now. Now, all good stories share one thing in common. They draw us in with dramatic tension that builds to a point and then is resolved in a certain way. And there are a few stories that don't resolve the dramatic tension until the end. In these stories, something is revealed at the very end that completely reconfigures our understanding of the whole story and makes sense of it in an entirely new way. Now, to my mind, two stories that stand out in popular fiction that do this are A Prayer for Owen Meany, I'm dating myself here, older novel, and The Sixth Sense by M. Night Shyamalan. Probably more of you have seen that. Now, both these stories, and I'm not going to give away any spoilers here, we learn something at the very end that completely changes our understanding of everything that's happened up to that point. Well, today is Trinity Sunday. Now, <clears throat> Kevin has committed the classic blunder of asking a, a, a systematic theologian to preach on Trinity Sunday. So buckle up. Uh, we are going to go on for a bit. Uh, second only to not getting involved in a land war in Asia. The doctrine of the Trinity, uh, despite the fact that this is Trinity Sunday, remains one of the most misunderstood doctrines of the Christian faith. Why? Well, I believe a major reason is that we've learned to think of the Trinity in a way that's disconnected from the story of God, the divine story that we learn through Scripture. Instead of beginning with the storyline of Scripture and seeing how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are revealed as its protagonist, we begin instead with what I like to call the Trinity math problem. We try to figure out an abstraction how God can possibly be one and three at the same time, as if the doctrine of the Trinity were some kind of theologian's Rubik's Cube that we had to solve. But friends, that is not how the church came to understand God's being as Trinity, nor is it how we should. So my goal for this morning is to show two things, how the doctrine of the Trinity is first the key that unlocks our understanding of Scripture, and secondly, the key that unlocks our understanding of our relationship with God. So first, how does the doctrine of the Trinity serve as the key, the 
Rosetta Stone that unlocks the meaning of scripture? Well, our first clue can actually be found in our liturgical calendar. Why is it that we observe Trinity Sunday today following Ascension and Pentecost and not at some other point in the Christian year? If God is eternally one being in three persons, why should it matter in which Sunday we observe the Feast of the Holy Trinity? Because that is how Scripture tells the story of God. Our liturgical calendar is based upon the incarnate life of our Lord Jesus as told in the Gospels. We begin in December with Advent and the promise of His coming. We celebrate His birth at Christmas. We observe His baptism and early life in Epiphany, His public ministry during Lent, His passion and death during Holy Week, His resurrection during Eastertide, and His ascension just two weeks ago. Only after we've observed all these events do we observe Trinity Sunday. Why? because this is the pattern of divine revelation that we see in Scripture. Throughout the entire life and ministry of Jesus, there is a burning question that lies at the heart of the story, who is Jesus? Jesus asked this question of the apostles, who do you say that I am? Yet given, even given Peter's answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, they don't fully understand what that means. Now, Jesus gives them hints along the way, but it's only after he is raised from the dead, only after he ascends into heaven, that the meaning of it all, the meaning of who Jesus is, becomes established clearly in their minds. That Jesus is somehow both man and yet God. And that changes everything. And so we see in our gospel reading today, the resurrected Jesus saying to the apostles, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Well, what can this possibly mean? These men were faithful Jews who knew that only God, only the Lord God of Israel holds all authority in heaven and on earth. But if that authority has been given to this man, Jesus, then he is clearly more than simply a great rabbi. The only possible conclusion is that he also in some sense must be God. And the fact that they worship him in this passage is proof of this very belief. So it's only you see at the end of the gospel story, in the light of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, that the New Testament church begins to realize the nature of Jesus' divinity, of Jesus' godhood. So it was in that light that John can write, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it was in that light that the author of Hebrews could say, but in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And it was in that light that Paul could joyously proclaim in Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this same narrative logic also applies to the apostles' understanding of the Holy Spirit. It's no accident that Trinity Sunday follows both Ascension and Pentecost and marks the beginning of ordinary time, which is the age of the church. 
The disciples already knew about the Holy Spirit from their knowledge of the Torah, the Old Testament, but they couldn't have anticipated Jesus sending the Spirit to fall upon them at Pentecost 10 days after his ascension. Here we see the Spirit coming upon the apostles in power in a way that had never before been seen by the people of God. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the Spirit's ministry extending and furthering the ministry of Jesus through the life of the church in ways that demonstrate the power of God. So it was in the light of these world-changing cataclysmic works of God, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of God's Spirit at Pentecost, that the New Testament church came to understand both Jesus and the Spirit as God and to name God in a new way as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches the disciples to call God Father in, in the Lord's Prayer. And in our Gospel reading today, he commands the disciples to baptize in this threefold name of God. And similarly, Paul concludes 2 Corinthians with that great blessing that Anglican Christians treasure from the daily office. And I invite you to say it with me now. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The apostolic understanding of God in the light of these mighty works is now Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, so much for the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? How did this new threefold understanding of God unlock a deeper understanding of God's revelation to Israel? How did it make sense of the Old and New Testaments together as one unified canon of Scripture? Now, hints of this were already given to the apostles by Jesus in the Gospels. So, for example, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, a phrase that evokes the mysterious divine human figure from Daniel chapter 7. This figure comes on the clouds of heaven to the throne of God and is given everlasting dominion over all people, nations, and languages. And we see the same thing picked up by John in the book of Revelation. Also, through the authority of his word alone, Jesus demonstrates throughout his ministry divine mastery over sickness, death, demons, and nature itself. And through his passion and death, Jesus is revealed to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who bears the griefs and sorrows of the world. So in these and many other ways, the New Testament church came to see that Jesus was the incarnation of an aspect of God that had been with God from the beginning, the word and wisdom of God through whom all things were made, the lamb slain from before the foundations of the world, the captain of the hosts of heaven, the fourth man in the fiery furnace, the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord that spoke to Moses from the burning bush, the eternal son of God. So it was in this way that the New Testament church, followed by the early church, discovered a pattern of understanding the whole of Scripture through a Trinitarian lens, a pattern that we still follow today. They could read Genesis 1-1, which we read this morning, and in it see the Father speaking all of creation into being through his pre-incarnate word. They could see the Father forming and breathing life into all things through his eternal spirit. 
They could read Psalm 2 and know the Son of whom the Lord speaks is the Lord Jesus, the Son of the Father. They could read the entirety of the Old Testament and see on every page the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so can we. So it was through this Trinitarian reading of Scripture that early Christian theologians like Irenaeus of Lyon came to refer to the Son and the Spirit as the two hands of God, through whom God both created the world and made humankind in God's own image. And we see this Trinitarian reading of Scripture, which the fathers called the rule of faith, captured in our ancient creeds. The best example of this, or most ancient one, is our Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit, etc. These creeds summarize the whole story of Scripture through the lens of three divine persons, all of whom are God, yet each one of which has a different role to play in the creating and redeeming work of the one God. So I hope you can see how by following the storyline of Scripture, we necessarily arrive, uh, sorry, uh, we necessarily come to see the whole Scripture as one divine story, the true story of the world in which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the chief protagonist. This, friends, is the right way to approach the doctrine of the Trinity. It is the way the ancient church reasoned from Scripture to the doctrine of the Trinity. For them, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't a problem to be solved. It was the answer to the question of how to make sense of the revelation of God in Holy Scripture. Consequently, another ancient theologian, Gregory of Nazianzus, famously said, when I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that should be our perspective as well. Now, as much as I'd love to, time doesn't permit us to conduct a historical survey of how the church moved from this first, this first and second century reading of Scripture to our fourth century doctrine of the one being and three persons of the Trinity. So I'm just going to drop a few points and then move on. Point number one. The doctrine of the Trinity is actually a minimal set of claims about God's being. It's actually a pretty minimal set of claims about God's being. While the early church had plenty to say about God's character and nature, it didn't presume to have data about what sort of being God is. God's being is ultimately mysterious and will probably remain ultimately mysterious to us. Instead, it simply affirmed that whatever sort of being God the Father is, the Son and the Spirit must necessarily be of that same being. If they are not of the same being, if the Son and the Spirit are not truly God, then to worship them would be wrong. We would be committing idolatry, and this is St. Athanasius' basic argument. But it's clear that the apostles did consider them to be of the being of God and worshiped them accordingly. And so the ancient church simply affirmed in both the Nicene and Athanasian creeds that whatever the Father's being is, the Son and the Spirit must be of the same being as the Father. I think this is pretty straightforward reasoning. I hope you do too. But second, the doctrine of the Trinity does not then mean that we worship three gods. This is the challenge. 
No, we worship one God made known to us in three persons. This is the most difficult aspect of Trinitarian theology for us moderns because we think of a person as a self-contained individual existence. But this isn't what scripture teaches nor what the historic church believed. The persons of the Trinity are not three individuals that happen to share the same nature as if they were three members of the same species. That would be tritheism. And if you've seen the uh, Lutheran satire videos about Trinitarian heresy, you could say, that's tritheism, Patrick. If you're familiar with that, uh, great. If you're not, sorry. Sadly, this is a common tendency in the American church. So now you're equipped to go to parties and hear people committing tritheism and say, no, that's tritheism. That's not Trinitarian theology. No, we don't believe there are three members of the same species. Scripture is clear that God is one, one in number and one in being. So when Jesus says to Philip, I and the Father are one, and if you have seen me, you have seen the He means it. Jesus is the incarnate word and image of God the Father. We can't know Jesus without knowing the Father and vice versa. We can't know the Father without knowing Jesus, not to mention the Holy Spirit. It's in fact impossible. And as we'll see in a minute, this has everything to do with the nature of our relationship with God. Now on this point, it is helpful to remember, and this is kind of a more geeky aside, uh, in case you didn't think it was geeky already. Uh, the term translated as person in English actually comes from the Latin word persona, which might broaden our, our grasp of what it means a little, which in turn was a translation of a Greek word that I won't uh, go into now. This was a word used by the ancient church in its attempt to identify the Father, Son, and Spirit while one God as distinct entities of one divine being that serve different roles in God's work of creation and redemption. While all are one God, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Each are distinct entities and agents of God's one being, yet they are all one God. Karl Barth helpfully refers to them as three distinct ways of God being God, which some people find helpful. I still like Irenaeus's uh, metaphor of the Son and the Spirit as the right and left hands of the Father, or the Son analogy that I gave to the kids a minute ago. But I hope you get the point. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who comes to us in three persons. Well, finally, third, the doctrine of the Trinity is also our best understanding of God's eternal being of love. And here we come to the payoff of this sermon. In addition to the one being and three persons of the Trinity, the ancient church learned from Scripture how to understand how the persons relate to one another. They reflected on Jesus' words in John 17, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. The ancient church concluded that each of the persons of the Trinity mutually indwell one another in an eternal communion of love. The Greek word for this is perichoresis. 
Because they are all of the one being of God, the persons of the Godhead have been indwelling one another from eternity in a never-ending relation of giving and receiving one another in love. Thus the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Spirit is in both, and both are in the Spirit. This eternal, mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity in love in fact, is what we mean when we say that God is love. The Holy Trinity is the dynamic unity of the one being in three persons of the Godhead in an eternal communion of mutual, self-giving love. Now, there's so much more we could say about all this. But in the time remaining, I want to briefly touch on the other way in which the doctrine of the Trinity is key to our understanding, and that has to do with our relationship with God. When we consider how Scripture speaks of human beings being brought into relationship with God and what the nature of that relationship is, we see the same Trinitarian pattern of Scripture at work. How do we come to know the Father? Through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. We are first drawn into relationship with God through the Spirit who opens our minds and hearts to receive Jesus Christ and spiritually unites us to him. And because we are in Christ and have received his grace and forgiveness, we are reconciled and brought into relationship with, into a relationship of love with God the Father. Because we are in Jesus through the Spirit, his Father becomes our Father, and we become the Father's children. And so Paul says in Romans 8, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, as remarkable as this relationship is, what's even more remarkable is that through the Holy Spirit, the Father and Son come to dwell in us and we in them. And this is true both as individuals and corporately together here as the church. Though through our sin and wickedness we were alienated from God and from one another, God in his mercy sent his Son in the power of the Spirit to reconcile us to the Father, to unite us to God in Christ, and in so doing to unite us to one another in the love of Christ. Just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit mutually indwell one another, so through faith in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, we now dwell in God and God in us, both as individuals and as the body of Christ. Through the Trinitarian pattern of God's saving grace, we are now included within the circle of God's eternal love. This is the communion of the saints, friends. This is the mystical bond of the Holy Spirit that we share through faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God the Father, and this is the Trinitarian faith. Now, there's so much more that we could say and should say about the doctrine of the Trinity, but we're out of time. I hope these two key concepts are helpful to you. They should make it clear, I hope, that to be Christian is to be Trinitarian in our faith. The doctrine of the Trinity is not an arcane puzzle invented by theologians to confuse people. It is the result of the church's deep reflection 
upon the essentially Trinitarian character of Holy Scripture and of the very nature of our salvation. Now, in a moment, we're going to stand and recite the Athanasian Creed. This creed is very long, but it is a comprehensive statement of the Trinitarian faith that has stood the test of time and is one of the three great creeds that our church acknowledges. Now, for those unfamiliar with this creed, let me offer a few tips. First, this creed has, has some pretty harsh things to say about those who don't believe what it teaches. But keep in mind that these words aren't directed to faithful Christians who may be struggling to understand these things. They are directed instead toward those who've rejected the Trinitarian witness of Scripture and its implications. Second, instead of speaking of the one being of God, this creed uses an older English word, substance, which kind of sounds like inert matter, and it's not helpful to modern readers. So this is a translation problem. So when you come to the word substance in the creed we're about ready to, to recite, think being, think being, and all will be well. Finally, this creed is a declaration of the faith of the church that while right and good simply cannot capture the depth and beauty of the reality of God's being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as we recite it, I encourage you to remember what we've just talked about and to contemplate that the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Trinity, is that eternal community of divine love that we have been welcomed into by the Father's word of truth and spirit of love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.